Hennessy Files podcast series. Proudly presented by Aloha Surf Manly. Welcome in, folks, to another episode of the Hennessy Files. Today, I'm delighted to sit down with a true living legend of our sport. With the nickname of the Iceman, Narrabeen's Damien Hardman set the surfing world alight during the 80s and 90s with the powerful Goofy Footer claiming two incredible world titles and along the way stamping himself as one of the most consistent, toughest performers to ever pull on a rashy. Welcome in, Duma. How are you, bud? Thanks, mate. Yeah, good to be here. Mate, let's start by having a chat about the current state of play when it comes to the World Tour and where you see it going in the future because it's pretty much up in the air at the moment, isn't it? Well, I guess um, <clears throat> this year with COVID, it's a pretty unusual year. But, uh, you know, I think the World Tour has been going from strength to strength. I think it's way more professional, way more watchable. The performance is better than when we used to do it. Um, but, you know, I think being a, a privately owned entity now, I think it's in a pretty precarious situation. And talking about, like, well, speaking before off air about the athletes and, you know, the, the, the different scenarios with companies these days, with wages in and the way the actual economy is, do you think they're going to be substan- like be able to hold up in the next couple of years or, you know, everyone's going to have to take a massive cut? Well, I think the way the surf economy is is actually probably stronger. You know, I think from what I've heard, Australia's performing pretty well. There's more people surfing because there's not as many people working. And I think it's pretty much the same right around the world. I've heard America's doing pretty well. Um, Brazil's not doing too well. Indonesia's not doing too well. But I think overall, the surf industry's a little bit insulated from what's happening in the, in the broader financial world. So um, I think the hard part is most of the guys who compete are basically on performance-based contracts for competition. And if they don't compete, then they're not going to get paid as much. So I think for a lot of the companies, it's a way to pay their athletes less in a way. And if anything, it probably makes the um, the underground, you know, sort of guys who are doing the photo trips and all that probably a little bit more valuable. Talking about, you know, wages from this era compared to your era in the 80s and 90s, um how were they based back then? Like your sponsorships, like was it a different era when it came to the way you guys were paid as athletes? I think we weren't paid any differently. I think it's all—it's probably all relative. You know, the guys are getting paid way a lot more now than what we were, but you know, the cost of living was not as high back then. And I think relative to where you sat in the rankings, like right now, the top guys get paid a lot, and the guys down the bottom don't get paid much. And that's how it was back in the 80s, 90s, um, and that's the way it's always been. You know, the, the, the top guys basically grab the, most of the cash and the, um, the guys down the bottom don't get as much. And that's the same in any sport. So let's, I want to first of all, before I go into your career, chat about uh, where you're from, Narrabeen, and it's one of the most iconic, famous, you know, stretches of sand probably in the world. But... Let's talk about the history of the place. And when you were a grommet, how did you come through the ranks and who did you look up to as a grom first? Oh, probably, well, well I started surfing Narrabeen when I was, I think I went down there to buy a wetsuit off. Me and my mate went down to buy a wetsuit off one of the local guys for 50 cents. <laughs> and it was um, stitched together with fishing line. And I think I was about eight or nine years old. I used to surf sort of between Warrywood and, and Narrabeen, 
when I was that young and I probably started, I think I started competing at Narrabeen when I was about 11, 10 or 11. And um, Greg Anderson was the first local guy that actually said, come and surf for us in a board riders comp. Um, but, you know, the guys I looked up to were, you know, Simon Anderson, Mark Warren, Terry Fitzgerald, Cole Smith. I guess out of all those guys, Cole Smith was probably my, the guy I looked up to the most because he was one of the few goofy footers at Narrabeen. You know, pretty much back then, all the great surfers were natural footers. And um, Cole had a pretty uh, unique personality, so he was sort of infectious. But, um, yeah, Narrabeen's always had that reputation as being, I guess, a pretty hardcore localized spot and you know back then that's how it was you know you, you had to um you know they didn't take any shit in the lineup um you had to basically prove yourself and you couldn't just paddle out there and get waves you know people talk about the amount of world tour services that have come out of you know out of northy over the years uh guys like you know like you said simon cole tf uh, and then into that next area of like nudes, uh, Hog, Davo, Bano, and then Davy and Laura. Surely it's there's more to it than just the wave. It's got to be a cultural thing, doesn't it? Oh, it's it's totally a cultural thing. You know, the wave's good, and the it's the best wave in Sydney. But um, I think over time, Narrabeen's sort of been the epicenter of Sydney surfing. You know, it definitely was in the seventies and eighties. And I think the culture that those guys built then. Um, basically still holds true today you know I think you know we have the same values um, you can't just paddle out there and just take any wave you want you need to respect the locals and I think um, you know it's it's a little bit more accommodating now than what it used to be but it's je- definitely a cultural thing you know everyone you know there's no one at Narrabeen that I'd say has ever had a big head um, you're always you know cut down a peg if you if you do and everyone knows where they come from and they know there's a pecking order and they know where they sit in the pecking order. And I guess when you start as a young grummet at Narrabeen, you're, you're right, you're, in an ideal world, you want to be the top of the pecking order so you're getting as many waves as you can. And uh, you have to perform to do that. Yeah, what I love about uh, your club is the transformation of certain athletes when they go into that team environment. The classic example for me is someone like Coops, right? Cooper is the nicest kid out of the water. But when you turn the switch for Cooper and, and it's all about Narrabeen and team, he's a different beast. Like, it's it's just like it's ingrained in him to, to be that focused and just will to win when it comes to representing your club. Well, I think that's, you know, we don't get an opportunity as surfers to surf in a team environment very often. So when you do, you make the most of it. And... Uh, you know, the one thing you don't want to do as an Australian is let, the, let your team down. And I think that's part of the Australian culture ra- as much as our North Narrabeen culture. So I think all our teams always been like that, that, you know, you basically live and die by the, the lake and grow up by the lake and, you know, you surf the alley and when you represent your club, um, that's sort of the pinnacle of a North, for a North Narrabeen surfer. Now, you're the president of the club these days. Um moving forward uh you've got some really really good talent coming through again uh in this generation who are the guys that you you're sort of you're identifying with at the moment thinking you know what if they do the work and uh and people know talent won't get you so far who are those guys who do you think will go to that next level um well i think the the tricky thing now is that there's so much talent in australia that when you actually put our talent in perspective with the rest yeah, we've got some really talented kids, but in the big scheme of things, 
Um, we're probably, I think right now, we're probably at a little bit of a low point that we've traditionally been at. And, you know, I think um, there's Benny Wilson and uh, Jack, uh, Jack Lawson. They're the real young kids who are coming through. And I think there's probably a bit of a gap between Davey and Laura and the sort of 16 to 18 year olds. You know, there's probably a 10 year gap. It's almost like we've missed a generation. So, um, you know, we're really focusing now on the real little kids. Yeah. And we've got a r- lot of real little kids uh, surfing well on the board riders. Um, it'll uh, Duke Worth, um, Tommy Hinwood. So there's a, bu- there's a bunch of kids up and coming who um, are sort of gonna fly under the radar for a little while, I think. You're right about that, you know, the talent pool as, as a president of a club myself. You can base yourself on what you got at your beach, but when you look at the overall picture of it, like these guys have to do the work because worldwide the talent pool is just enormous. Oh, it's huge. And, you know, you look at how many surfers or young surfers, or young kids are getting homeschooled now. And most of the kids are getting homeschooled. The objective is that that kid's going to be a world champion. And it's almost like a fad through junior surfing right now that all these kids they're not going to school they just surf all day every day and they can only you you look at there's probably hundreds of them out there doing it but about all those hundreds of kids there's only one that's ever going to reach that pinnacle or two so um i think it's 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 a great thing for surfing you know you look at some of the stuff the kids are doing on instagram at 10 and 12 years old it blows your mind it's like what we dreamt about back in the 80s and 90s and it's probably yeah, I'm sure that John John and all the best guys in the world weren't doing at the same age what the, the young kids are doing now. Now let's go back in time with your junior career. 84, you bounced into a huge year. That, that was, was that the year that you went to an elite level, came to the fore? Because you won the national, then you won the world juniors, correct? And yeah. went onto the tour, onto the QS or whatever it was back then that year. Pretty much. Well, I finished school in 1983 yeah. and my goal was when I finished school was basically to have a gap year. I did my HSC, decided I was gonna have a gap year, but just put everything into um, trying to win the world junior title. Because back then it was, um, it still is really prestigious, but then it was the only world junior title. And you know, I think Curran had won it the year before, it was only held every two years. So it, for me, it was my last year in it. So I pretty much left school and just surfed and trained and surfed and trained all day, every day. Um, and then I went to the world titles where we was had, it at it was at uh, huntington beach in california oh, yeah. and we probably had the best australian team or as good of australian team as there has ever been you know we had every single guy on the australian team went on to compete at a high level on the world tour who was in that side uh there was rob bain gary elkerton dave mccauley wow. simon law tony ray you know it was the team was totally stacked and um you know we were probably the red hot favorites going to huntington beach we got over there and the Americans had a, a team that wasn't as renowned, but all guys that ended up competing on the world tour and did really well. Um, but most of them we'd never heard of back then. So um, they sort of ca- caught us unawares and pretty much kicked our ass as a team. Um, you know, they had Mike Parsons and uh, Chris Frohoff. Um, they had a, Brad Gerlach. So they had, a really good, they had a really good team. They didn't have any weak links and they had two Australians coaching them. So, um, that, Who was uh, that? That was Peter Town and Ian Cairns. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they, we had Paul Nielsen, who was basically grew up with those, guys, those coaches. So there was a lot of rivalry, and it was a, it was a great trip. But, um, yeah, I just focused on winning that world title and, you know, won the world title. 
And I think I started doing a couple of Australian events in 1984. And then if I decided if I did well in those, then I'd do the World Tour the next year. How was the transition from, uh, like, first of all, as a junior, like these days you've got the junior series. You guys didn't have that, did you? We didn't, no. No, we had... I think there was a, I think, forget what they were called, but we had, there was an Australian circuit. Yep. It was like a pro-am circuit, I guess. And we had, so I competed on that in the opens. Um, pretty much, I did okay, but I, I didn't knock doors down or anything like that. Um, so we didn't have as many junior events as what we do have now. I think uh, Torse Fenson was running a few events. <laughs> um, and that was about the, the, that's really all there was. Wow, and... When, when you talk about these days where you got the QS and then you got the CT, how was the actual, when you went into the uh, elite, like the open ranks as a professional, how did you get onto the main tour? There was trials or something. Is that how it worked back in the day? Well, I think back then the, the biggest focus, well, there was basically a career path. So you competed in the Northern Beaches, yeah. the state titles, and then the Australian titles. And they had that for juniors, opens, and all the other divisions. Yep. And then they also had a really good schools program where they had age groups for um, regional, state, and national at a, at a school level. So I did both of those, and they were even the school. The school level was really, um, really tough, really challenging, and that was a good stepping stone for, I guess, the the regional events. Then, if you did well in those, there was the every pro event had a trials. So if you had the Coke Classic at Manly, you had the trials, you had the, you had the stubbies at Burley, and the trials were pretty much open to about 150 guys roughly. So right. it was all the best guys from all over the world in the trials, but to get in the trials, you had to do well in the regional events. Okay. So you couldn't just be Joe Blow, put your entry in and, and get in. You had to have some sort of competitive track record. And you used to have to write down your actual competitive results and, as part of your entry form. And <laughs> Did then, people lie? I'm sure they did. <laughs> so they just assess it based on what you wrote. So you could almost write anything. If they knew who you were, you're probably in. If no one knew who you were, you're probably, so you're probably in too. That'd work that well now. Everyone would be bullshitting every day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, 85, you sort of hit the ground running. You end up 17th in the world and you won Rookie of the Year. How did you handle the adjustment into the big leagues and the attention, not only on yourself, but just attention from the fans and everything? Was that hard to deal with and the travel? Not really. I was pretty, I was pretty quiet. Um, and I was never one of those people that banged my own drum. I just basically surfed, did my own thing and let my results speak for themselves. So, you know, you had other people who were the full characters and out there and getting all the attention. Um, but yeah, I never really got that I guess that's why I was a good competitor I never got phased by what was going on outside your bubble you know I just sort of did my own thing and was sort of in my own world and basically competed so um, I never really got that whole fan never really phased me at all um, I didn't didn't worry about what anyone said whatever anyone thought I just did my own thing 87 88 you know the massive year for you you win your world title and going into that final event basically at the coke i remember as a grommet going down there and it was packed honestly and you guys were like untouchable i remember myself i was looking over a barrier you guys were all standing in, and it was like you guys were like the biggest rock stars in the world how did you handle that pressure of that final event because you were going for your first world title and you're only like 21 or something were you? i was 21 um Pretty much came down to the last, 
well, it was the Australian League. So there was a, there was Bell's contest at Wollongong and the Coke Classic at Manly. And I think at the start of the Australian League, I was in fifth spot. And I'd come off three last places in the prior events. Wow. So I wasn't probably in form. And I remember we started that leg and I was getting coached by Terry, Gray, Terry Day and Greg Day at the time. And Greg said to me, hey, you're within striking distance of winning the world title. You got one shot. You may never have this opportunity again. Should put everything into it, focus, train, do whatever you have to do um, and just give it everything you got. And that's what I did. You know, I pretty much trained like, I think I was, we did all these fitness tests at the Institute of Sport and they said I was basically had the endurance of a, a cross country skier and the leg strength of, you know, like a, a power lifter and, they used all. They had all these yardsticks where they judge you by. I was, you know, skinny little scrawny kid still, but um, I ended up getting super fit. And I think in that four-month period, my surfing improved like 20 or 25 percent. And we got to the Bells event, and I just felt like I was, just felt like I was indestructible. Um, and I had a. I ended up making the final there with Tom Carroll, and it was real. It was small rink on, probably three foot, but really clean and really good rink on. So it was really good on your backhand. Um, and I just remember, and it's, Rincon's a really physical wave. Like you actually do a lot of turns on it and you have to work to get to the end. And I think um, I just remember finishing waves and just feeling like I could paddle out as fast as I could. I wasn't puffed, I wasn't, you know, I was just, I was at the top of my game. Um, so there was a lot of stress coming into the last event. The last event, I think I was, I wasn't, I think Gary Elkerton might've been still leading, but it ended up coming down to everyone sort of lost through the event that me and Kong met in the Semi? semi-final. And that was, you know, we both won our quarterfinals and we knew that the next day the semi-final was on and whoever won that heat was the world champion. So that was, it was like the ultimate pressure. It's not like a, the unusual thing was it just didn't happen that day. And normally that's what happens. You know, you see the pipe contest now and it comes down to the last heat of the year, but they've got through the quarters, semis and finals through the day. So there's a build up. The difference with the coat contest was we actually had to sleep that night and you had the whole night to think about it. And I remember I, fucked, I could not sleep and it probably got about two hours sleep. Come down and I'm sure Kong was the same, you know, it was such a high pressure heat to have to think about it for a while that it actually just magnified the pressure. But um, we got to the fight, we got to that heat. It was like, probably, it was good for Queenie. It was three, I was gonna say, it was three foot. It was three foot, running right, right to the pool. Um, huge crowd, beautiful sunny day. It was, you know, you couldn't have got a better day. Um, and, you know, I think we both sat out there for the first 10 minutes of the heat, hassled the shit out, shit out of each other, paddled too far inside. And then, um, you know, it, everything just kept magnifying the pressure. How did the priority situation, was it that, was that back in the day without the paddle around the buoy? You had buoy? to paddle around the buoy, yeah. So wow. no one had priority at the start of the heat. So it's just like it is now. So you just had to paddle out there and whoever got the first wave, the other person automatically got priority. So I ended up cracking and I ended up getting the first wave, which in hindsight was the best thing that happened because I got a start and then got another wave and basically put Kong behind the eight ball which made him, I guess the pressure was on him and he, um, he had to wait for better waves and he got a couple, but he just didn't get enough in the end. Yeah, that footage of you on your back end just attacking it, it's sort of the rhythm of the wave and your surfing, you know, a, a look, from the outside looking in, it looked like you sort of, 
you had the edge on him in that heat because of the fact that those waves just suited how you attacked. Yeah, I think it, I did. You know, I felt like back then, goofy footers were the underdogs always. Yeah. And that was the way that it had always been. And I felt my backside was way better than my, my front side. And that's, that was definitely my strength through my whole career. So for me, surfing three foot running rights at Manly was um, definitely more advantageous than surfing 20 foot sunset against Kong. So um, for me, I felt like I definitely had the edge on him. How was it to win that world title in front of family and friends? Oh, it was amazing. That was, yeah, apart from winning it at Narrabeen, um, that's the only thing I think that would make it better. You know, I pretty much had my whole family there, all my friends, everyone I went to school with, everyone from Narrabeen that I grew up with. It was, it was sort of surreal. It was, um, it was one of those moments where you actually think back the next day, you go, shit, did that actually happen? Um, you had to pinch yourself. But uh, yeah, it was amazing. And it was, um, you know, they crowned the world champion couple of nights later in Sydney and same thing. Big night. A big, huge oh, night. Yeah, it was the 80s. It sort of went down in, in uh, history in the Narrabeen area. There was, there was a house that was over on the um, corner of Waco's Parkway and they had five kegs there that night. And it was, uh, yeah, it was pretty amazing. I want to talk about this region and the three guys who, like the iconic goofy footers from this region in my eyes were yourself, Barton, and TC, what was that competitive sort of rivalry like between the three of you guys? Uh, it was intense. You know, I think for me, I always really looked up to Tom Carroll because he used to surf at Narrabeen a lot. Um, and he was the best goofy footer in the world, you know, right through the 80s and well, his whole career. He's still, he's still an amazing surfer. Um, so I never really looked at Tom as, uh, as a, someone I was competing against. I never surfed against him, even though he's only sort of four or five years older than me seemed like a generation so i was he was to me he was a hero rather than a competitor and it wasn't until i actually got on the world tour and i was established that i actually looked at him as a competitor um barton on the other hand and you know i remember one day at narrabeen i was riding single fins and tom gave me a go of his thruster it was a burn thruster and instantly i was like it was a revelation it went it was so different so much better and tom tried to um tee up a sponsorship with Burn. So at that point, he probably still looked at me as a grummet rather than a competitor. And that, you know, I looked up to him as a hero. Barton was probably a little bit closer to my age. We both rode for Aloha. And the same thing, I probably looked up to Barton as a, as a hero at first rather than a competitor. But my first full year on the tour, Barton actually took me under his wing and I traveled with Barton. And that was a real eye-opener. Eye I was gonna say, that'd be interesting. We did too. Well, I didn't have a license, so I couldn't drive. I couldn't rent a car. And um, so Barton, basically, he was the driver and he, uh, he took me under his wing and he, he was so professional. He had a book. He had a book that he'd write down the, you know, basically everything about every heat he ever surfed in. I'm sure he's still got the book. And he'd write down his competitors' strengths and weaknesses and how he thought he was going to win the heat. And I actually picked that up from Barton and started doing that for a while as well. So, um, you know, I learned so much from traveling with him. But the funny thing was when we actually went for the world title in 87, you know, Barton lost in the quarters, I think. And basically our rivalry was so intense that, you know, we were so, he was so competitive, I was so competitive. Our friendship really disintegrated that year, even to the point where the next year we're on tour, we actually had a bar fight in Spain at like four in the morning oh, wow. over, over a pool table. 
So it sort of went from, um, you know, your mate taking you on tour to you like, we're literally fighting in the streets. So how did you guys hold those relationships between the three years, yourself, TC and Bill over the years? Because you're all ultra competitive. I know you're all good mates now, but when you look at the amount of world titles that you're all involved in over that course of time, there's a real fine line between being mates on tour and being competitors. Did that competitive nature of you three individuals drive you to succeed during the period that you guys were all on tour together? Oh, definitely. You know, um, you know, we're all good mates now, and you know, we're all good mates on the tour. We had some amazing times together, but um, we were, yeah, through the through the, I guess, the early '90s, we were so competitive. And it's funny when you're competing, you always meet certain people more than others so i had heaps of semis and finals with tom carroll i had a lot of finals with barton but for some reason me and tom always met in the semis in the final and you know i think i've never seen the stats or never kept the stats but i felt like i always had the wood on him in most venues um if it was pipe then it was a different story um tom was just so far and away better than anyone else any other goofy footer at piper was ridiculous but um you know i think most of the locations we met at met at was were right handers we met at bells met at you know france in beach breaks england in beach breaks japan so we had a lot of really good heats together but we were all so competitive um you know and it was different then it was um there wasn't as much prize money as what there is now in the events so pretty much you had to do well in the events to to get to the next event in a lot of instances. So, you know, it was basically dog eat dog, dog, eat dog you know, and, and it probably the, the famous, I guess, the interference at Narrabeen that me and Tom, well, I, I got Tom on an interference at Narrabeen, the Coke Classic. And it was, you know, basically I was surfing within the rules, but everyone looked at it as, you know, a, I guess a dog act. Whereas I sort of paddled up the inside and took off in the white water and Tom got the interference. But I remember at that time, I literally had bought a house the week before. I had this huge mortgage and I was like, fuck, how am I going to pay off this mortgage? <laughs> and I was at the time, I was like, I need to get through this heat to, to pay the mortgage. So it was like, like, I was consciously thinking of stuff like that when I was competing. It was a little bit bizarre. But you know what, Duma, you say that, you know, people spoke about that famous incident. And I, and I remember I read up on it yesterday as well. And uh, there was a quote from Nick Carroll. Of course there was. Yeah, of course there was. <laughs> but when you look at, like, say now people say that about gabby too but yeah. you can't like pay shit on people for playing with inside the rules of our sport like it's like rugby league or any sport you got to play with what you're given whether people like it or not and winning doesn't always come you know with smiles you know sometimes you've got to win hard that's and that's right that's just the fact that if you're a competitor in any sport well, our sport's a little bit more subjective, but then, you know, it's not a running race, it's not a swimming race where you can't, you, there's not, it's not subjective. So I guess for us, yeah, we don't make the rules, but you actually surf within them. So you do whatever you have to do to win. And you see, I remember Tom saying to me after, after it, as he always did, he, yeah, he went, you bastard, <laughs> you, you little bastard. But later on he said, I would have done the same thing, but I wouldn't have thought of it. So, and a lot of people said the same thing, you know, they said, and I watched Medina at Pipe um, last year and, you know, I, what he did was so competitively smart, I actually wouldn't have thought to do that. You know, to actually limit the scoring potential on a wave, I think is definitely more of a dog act than what I did. 
you know, taking off from the foam way down the beach from someone. You know, basically he dropped in on someone to stop them actually getting a score. And to me, that's next level. And but as it's a, smart. As a competitor, that's the most ruthless thing you can do. But I, well, I wouldn't have thought of it. And a lot of people said to me, you were the ultimate competitor. 